Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Happy Monday, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you're watching me around the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's teaching. I'm Krista Bontrager. I'm a Christian theologian and public apologist, and this is the channel where I offer biblical teaching, teaching on the Bible, if you will, as well as theological commentary on social issues. And I am continuing to bring you content to help give you a biblical perspective on the events happening in the Middle East. Today, we're going to be joined by my friend Kelly Mitchell, who lives in the Holy Land. And um, you might remember her from a conversation we did earlier this year on Messianic Judaism. And Callie and I had been having a lot of back and forth about having her back. It was such a wonderful conversation. And we thought, you know, there might be other issues to explore together. Having her back to talk about the war in Israel wasn't exactly what either of us planned. But um, the one of the first things I did when I heard about my daughter texted me about the events in Israel was I reached out to Callie because She's not just a guest, she's my friend, and I love her and pray for her on the regular. And um, I'm gonna get a little emotional. I just was concerned for her and her family, and so we prayed for them right on the spot. And um, I'm very glad that she's willing to come on and share her kind of first-person account of her thoughts and feelings and perspectives as a longtime resident of Jerusalem someone who's married to a Messianic Jew and is deeply involved in the Messianic community there in the Holy Land. And, um, you know, I think that Callie's very brave. She's been doing some lives on her personal Facebook page. And just her heart is such an, an educator. And she has interesting perspectives from living there. She also has some thoughts about how to pray for the people in Israel, how to love our Jewish friends, and also how to think about some of the issues and problems in Gaza and the West Bank. And, um, you know, neither of us are claiming to be, uh, you know, some sort of UN-level experts on what's happening there. But, um, you know, I think that she has some valuable things to, to say, and I think she brings an important perspective to the conversation. And once again, this is a pre-recorded conversation, so I still want to encourage you to add your comments and your feedback and your questions. That helps me um, know about potential future content of things that I need to plan, other topics that people are interested in, especially when I see kind of trend lines and people all asking similar questions. That greatly helps me. So go ahead and put that feedback there. Or if you don't want to do it publicly, you can just send me an email. That's fine too. Um, and I want to encourage you to share this stream with a friend who maybe is also feeling confused and trying to figure out what side of the conversation is telling the truth. As we've said in previous programs, there's a lot of propaganda out there. So, you know, how do we begin to sift through all of that. 
And with that, I would like to welcome my friend, Callie Mitchell, back to the Theology Mom podcast. Welcome, Callie. Hi, it's good to be here. It's glad. I'm so glad to have you here. I know it's late there. You just probably put your kids in bed. But... Yeah, they're, uh, <laughs> they're actually working on it right now. I can hear them behind me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am grateful for you to make the effort and set aside the time to do this. For, for those who are new and they don't know who you are, maybe give us a little two-minute introduction to you and how you came to love the Jewish people and how you as an American came to live in the Holy Land. Yeah. Um, so it started out, uh, really, it goes back to my grandfather. <laughs> my grandfather was mentored by one of the few Jewish men in our North, our small North Carolina town, and um, they became close family friends. And my grandfather worked for him, so my dad's family grew up keeping the rhythm of the Hebrew calendar and just having a love for the Jewish people. Um, and then my childhood best friend was actually Messianic Jewish, but their family attended the Baptist church that we um, attended as a family. Um, so I didn't really even know that there was any such thing as Messianic Judaism. I thought that the Jewish believers just sort of integrated into our um, mainline, mainline evangelical churches. Um, so I went to school um, at UNC Greensboro, and when I finished, I decided I was going to go on to get a master's degree in architecture from the University of Cincinnati. And I prayed and asked the Lord because I had already received a ministry calling at that time. I knew I was going overseas somewhere. I just didn't know where. And I asked the Lord to send me to a church where I would grow in my ministry calling. And when I got to Cincinnati, I had a friend there who invited me to a Messianic congregation. And I went and I absolutely loved it. I soaked up the theology. Everything about it made sense. <laughs> um, and after being there a while, a number of the ladies were like, you should meet Devin. Um, so Devin Mitchell, he had grown up in their congregation, and then he moved to Israel. So eventually he made it back for his brother's wedding, and we started dating while he was there. Um, turns out they were right. And <laughs> 15 years later, we are all citizens in Israel. We have four children um, and one Shetland sheepdog, and we live in Jerusalem. Very good. So those do those Messianic Jewish women, do they have a little side hustle of matchmaking? Is that all that works? No, Jewish matchmaking mothers. <laughs> uh, maybe we need some more of that over on the evangelical side. <laughs> I think so, <laughs> So tell us a little bit about October 7th, the, the day of the invasion. It's been about a month now uh, when people will be watching this what you and your family and your community have been going through, how you're doing by now. I'm sure, you know, that it even now as you're sitting there, it might feel a little tentative. Um, so just talk to us a little bit about those events. Yeah, so we had been celebrating the Feast of Sukkot, um, the Feast of Tabernacles. And our family has a tradition of sleeping outside in our sukkah the last night. Um, the tradition is that you're supposed to sleep out in it every night, <laughs> but we don't, we don't do that. We, we pick certain nights. Um, so we pick the last It's a little night. bit like a tent, like you're going camping, yeah. urban camping. Okay. So, exactly. okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so we, we were sleeping out there and I woke up in the morning early because my phone was just going bonkers. It was buzzing like crazy. 
and my neighbor's rooster was crowing. And honestly, I was a little annoyed. <laughs> um, and so then one of my daughters, she said, Ema, your phone has a lot of red alerts. And I was like, what? And so I looked at it, red alerts. We all in Israel, and maybe some of your listeners or viewers do too, but we all have red alert apps on our phones that um, can tell us where rockets are being fired or where rockets are hitting in Israel, like where the Iron Dome is being deployed. Um, so I looked at it and it was just mass barrages of rockets going into the south and up towards Tel Aviv. I think at that point it was in Beersheba and like this is six in the morning. So um, we all got up and um, we went inside the house and my husband started cooking breakfast and I'm just watching the barrages on my phone and they're moving closer to Jerusalem. There's certain areas like I watch my phone when this is happening and I see if they start hitting in Tel Aviv and if they start hitting in Rishon Etzion, then I know that we have potential to be to get a siren in Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem's 80 kilometers away from Gaza and it's on a mountain. So we don't get as many rockets in Jerusalem as they do in other areas because they have to use a more, um, a bigger, more expensive rocket to get to Jerusalem. Plus we have Temple Mount here and they're pretty indiscriminate. They're not precision missiles. So um, they risk a lot to send rockets into Jerusalem. So we don't often get them, but I was just sitting there watching and I was like, I think we're gonna go get one. I need to go downstairs and check and make sure our shelter door is open. But at that point, we always make pancakes and we were going to take the pancakes back into the sukkah and eat them. And just as he was calling us to get the pancakes, there's a siren. So we all ran down and sure enough, the door was locked. And so Devin ran back up and got the keys so and he went back down and we all got in and we got in and then we, it was a long siren. Um, Usually they enter some, they're pretty short. This was long. And then the first Iron Dome happened and uh, it shook our door, um, our steel protective door. It literally rattled. Um, so I knew that the Iron Dome had intercepted fairly close to where we lived. Um, so we followed protocol and then we went back upstairs. And just a few minutes later, we had a second one. So we all ran down again. And at that point, I was like, I'm just going to move us down. So I moved all of our emergency supplies in and all of our dog supplies and the activities for the kids that I had prepared with our emergency stash. And because this is how Israelis live, we live with emergency supplies. <laughs> um, you guys should too though. Um, so I moved everything down. And while I was down there, I had, I had taken the dog down, another siren um, sounded. And I was a little nervous because I, I, I didn't know if my kids knew that I had taken the dog and I was like, they're gonna be looking for the dog. But they all came down. Um, they made it. They said they saw the dog with me. <laughs> um, and at that point, we just stayed because we had siren after siren after siren after siren. I think we had like seven total. Um, so we spent several hours just down there in our bomb shelter, um, reading and playing and praying. Um, and we came out about lunchtime and then it was quiet for the rest of the day. But meanwhile, like while we're in the bomb shelter, we're all Israelis, we're all communicating, you know, we're on WhatsApp and we're like, what's going on? Everybody's safe. And we start hearing things from independent journalists and friends in the South. Like I got a message that there was 35 people being held hostage. And so I shared in the mom's group, anyone else hearing this? And people are like, it's not on MSM. 
And then someone else was like, I got a message that they took over three police stations and we're just sitting there trying as a group of friends all on WhatsApp, trying to piece together what was going on. And um, things were trickling out from friends that lived down in the South and still nothing on MSM, nothing on J Post or Times of Israel. Um, and then finally, Hamas started actually releasing videos of what they were doing on their social media and even on the social media of the people that they were um, murdering. And um, at that point, it was obvious what was going on. Like we couldn't deny what was taking place. And I think it was just like shock um, kind of settled in on everyone. Like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. Like what just happened? And the next few days even were um, increasingly worse because the news was continuing to come out. We were hearing what exactly had taken place and even learning that we had a friend who was down there. She's fine, but she was stuck in her um, bomb shelter down there in the south in Sturrock for a while. Um, it just, I think, I almost think like the next two days after were worse than that initial first day. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure as you're trying to piece this together, um, and then you're coming out of the shelter. I remember that first day when you texted me, you're just like, I'm just really tired. You know, yes. it's just a very, very long day and you're still kind of probably disoriented in what is really happening. I remember you texting me some questions that you had like, yeah. What about this? What about this? And how did our intelligence not know? And you just, hey. it was just a lot to process all at once. Yeah, because we did, Krista and I, we did communicate that day. And I was just like, I have no idea how this happened. Like, we have the best intelligence in the world. I don't know what, what in the world happened. Like, yeah. we were just all in so much shock. And, you know, when you're running to the bomb shelter, your adrenaline is up. So that's, really exhausting you know to be in that state of fight or flight um it's really an exhausting experience but beyond that um when we started learning that the terrorists had actually broken into people's homes uh -huh. um, thinking about the reality of that experience they, these people were being held hostage for hours and, and it, they were part of the reason that they were in there so long is because this was a hostage scenario so so the special forces were having to negotiate with terrorists to release people. Um, but just thinking about that was terrifying. Like I wasn't, I wasn't sleeping at night for the first few days and it wasn't because I was afraid of rockets. It was because I had this fear that what if someone broke into our house? All right. Um, it was extremely unsettling. Yeah. Now, I know that uh, on the One for Israel podcast, I posted this on my Facebook page that they had a short interview with, uh, I believe it was a mother and a son-in-law who were living in a kibbutz about two miles from the Gaza uh, Gaza border. And um, they were in their shelter and they could hear the soldiers in their house, but they didn't come to the shelter door for whatever reason, they left that house, but they went and took their neighbor. And this is one of them that was one of the images that we all saw on, on CNN and that sort of thing of the older woman who um, was murdered. And that was their neighbor. And I mean, it's just terrifying to, to think about. I'm sure it would be 
just what is happening. It would be so disorienting in the beginning to to really even be able to process it. Now that it's been a couple of weeks, or I'm assuming your schools are reopened and things are trying to regain normalcy. Right. And that's part of the Israeli way. Um, they are an extremely resilient culture. And when there's a conflict here, it's like immediately things start back into normal. Whereas I think as an American, you know, we think after 9-11, it's like everything shut down <laughs> and it took them um, more than a decade to get that building replaced. But here in Israel, it's like they they flip things right right away. When they had all the suicide bombers in the Intifada, if the building was bombed, they rebuilt it right away. And, you know, I'm an architect, so this is all interesting to me just to see how quickly they would do this. And here in Jerusalem, um, I was actually surprised that the first few days everything shut down as it did because that was not the norm for for the culture. But I think that was a response to the terrorist infiltration rather than the rockets. I think everybody just had this shock and this horror over just how horrendous this was. And um, now as as it settled down some in Jerusalem, we're not getting rockets where we are. Um, Jerusalem is considered to be a yellow city, according to Homefront Command. Um, green is the safest, then yellow, red, or then yellow, orange, and red is the most um dangerous. So we're yellow. Uh, so the schools that have um, bomb shelter space for the children are allowed to open. Um, my children's school, uh, my younger kids, they attend the Messianic school um, so they can learn in Hebrew. So my younger two, they're going every day, but my my um, eighth grader, he is going part-time and he's alternating with um, other grade levels so that they can accommodate all the kids at their school. Um, but everything's opening up. They, you know, like my son's baseball practice started this week. Um, so things are starting to open up as long as there is protective facilities available. We're being encouraged to uh, start moving into like more normal life again. So speaking of the Messianic community, um, how are they responding to the crisis? How is that going? Um, really well, actually. Um, we're really hope-filled for the most part and full of peace. Um, the Messianic community, initially we were doing a lot of prayer meetings on Zoom because we weren't permitted to meet together. Um, our congregation finally did meet together last weekend and it was so good. <laughs> it was just so good to see people in person. Um, my mom's group that I lead, we're still meeting online. Um, hopefully next meeting on schedule, we'll meet together. Um, but we're all praying so much and we also, um, we're doing a lot of volunteering. So Jerusalem, since it is relatively safe, this is where families that have been evacuated from the south are being placed and families also who've been evacuated from the northern border are being placed. So we're doing a lot of volunteering with them. I'm actually, hopefully, um, on Sunday this week, going to volunteer with some children from the south and do some art projects. Um, of course, things change so fast, we never know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm scheduled to do that. Um, we have a lot of Messianics volunteering to help support the IDF. Um, actually, we have, of all demographics in Israel, the ID, the Messianic community has the highest percentage of IDF service. We are as close to 100% service as you can get. <laughs> um, so that means that we have a lot of moms whose husbands are serving in reserve right now. And we also have a lot of moms that have adult children because all of our kids go into the IDF at 18. 
So um, we're pressing in in prayer really hard for the Messianics and the IDF. The IDF as a whole, of course, but specifically the ones that we know who are serving. Um, but yeah, I think we're coping pretty well as a community. So there's probably a lot of Messianic moms right now that are temporarily single parenting and and I'm sure you guys are trying to help encourage each other as much as you can. And that's a great way that we all can be praying for you guys there as well. What's the difference between being a Jew and being a Zionist? And why do I keep seeing so many pictures on Twitter of Orthodox Jews holding signs that say they aren't Zionists and they support the Palestinians. I'm so yeah. confused. Can you right. lend some cultural context and insight to that for me? Yeah, sure. Because that is totally confusing. <laughs> okay, so I think I'll just start out by saying that those Orthodox Jews who are pro-Palestinian are part of two different organizations that are a very, very, very extreme fringe movement in the Orthodox community. So they don't represent the whole of the Orthodox community. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, Zionists, though, to be Zionist, the simple definition of a Zionist is someone who believes that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, have a historic homeland in the land of Israel. Um, that's the broad, simple definition of Zionism. So there's a tie between the land and yeah. being a Jew. That yeah. those two things are are connected. That's to be a Zionist. Okay. Yeah. And so most most all Jews are Zionist, and most Christians, unless they hold a supersessionism, would be Zionist too. In that sense, like we okay. we mostly are all going to fall under that umbrella. And then of course Zionism, um, it has a lot of nuance. So you could be a political Zionist, which that arose when the nation state movement arose in I think the nineteenth century. Um, you can be a cultural Zionist. Cultural Zionists were the ones that were responsible for helping to revive the Hebrew language. Hebrew is the only ancient language that went out of use and has resurrected and come back into use. Huh. Um, you can be um, a social Zionist. They started the kibbutz movement. Um, there's a different branches of Zionists that you can be religious Zionist. Um, and then, of course, Christian Zionist. So what Theodore Herzl did in the late 19th century is he took all of the branches of Zionism outside of probably Christian Zionism and um, brought them together into one movement. And he authored the book, The Jewish State. And that's what really propelled the Zionist movement as a whole um, into establishing the modern state of Israel. Um, of course, he passed away before he saw that vision realized, but he's the one that was responsible for picking up that momentum. Um, and the Orthodox that reject this idea, they do so on the basis of, um, believing that, that the modern state of Israel is anti-Messianic because the Messiah has not yet returned. They don't believe that there should be, um, a state of Israel until the Messiah appears. Oh, okay. That's so, super helpful. Okay. Continue. But I mean, that just clicked for me. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And so their perspective on this um, is not even about Israel being a secular state. It's just on the merit of the Messiah not having been revealed. And they think that actually the right response to the state of Israel is for it to be destroyed. So they are aligned with um, 
some of our more aggressive anti-Israel neighbors in that sense. But they really are a fringe movement and they don't represent the whole of the Orthodox community or the whole of the Jewish community at all. Um, I live in a very religious neighborhood and I wouldn't say that my neighbors are super patriotic Zionist um, Jews. They, they're they not really so much like the secular community is, but um, in other other religious communities, but they, um, but they aren't, you know, hostile towards the state of Israel in any way. Oh man, that gives me, makes me have so many other questions, but I mean, so there are people, there are Jewish Orthodox, fringe Orthodox Jewish people who live in Israel, but are really for the state of Israel existing. Yeah, I know. And they want to live under the protection of the IDF and the Iron Dome while holding up signs that say we don't support Israel. We support, am am I on the right track here? Oh, yes. That doesn't make any sense to me. And live on our tax dollars. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm really glad I asked about that because that has been, they are you being used as props over here Mm. by the mainstream media to really undermine the case for Israel. I mean, they're showing a lot of these pictures and, you know, mm-hmm. try to use it as, see, even the Jewish people, they they support Palestine. And I'm like, there's got to be more to this story than than that. So, yeah, no, they're totally fringe. <laughs> that's super helpful. You had posted something that was very thoughtful on your Facebook page. It was an article that I saw where there was like your Jewish friends, something to the effect of your Jewish friends might be hurting and you don't even know about it or that yeah. they've kind of mentally unfriended you um in the last week and you don't even know it um so maybe let's start with advice you might have as we're engaging with our jewish friends what we might say yeah it was a fantastic article from israel today and um the author um he just shared his heart openly about how uh, you probably lost Jewish friends in the last few weeks and didn't know it because um, they don't know where you stand on this issue, essentially. Uh, that was sort of his thesis. And um, where he's coming from the, from here is um, that they really, the Jewish population, your Jewish friends, what they really need to see from you right now is real moral clarity because they're really hurting. Um, they just suffered. We, I mean, I'm not Jewish. I'm a Gentile Israeli, but you know, here in Israel, we suffered an attack, um, that was the deadliest attack that the Jewish people have faced since the Holocaust. And the, um, forensic team that's been recovering the bodies and trying to identify them and understand what took place. They have said that what happened to those people the level of torture that they experienced before they died was worse than what took place during the Holocaust. Um, and I've heard from families that were there, they referred to what took place as a pogrom. So they're processing this through so much generational trauma um, that's been inflicted on the Jewish people through anti-Semitic efforts and genocidal efforts. And they are really, really hurting. And they really need for their Gentile and particularly their Christian friends to demonstrate some real moral clarity on what happened. 
Because not only are they hurting, but they're tired because they're having to deal with these arguments of, um, you know, like these anti-Semitic theories that you that you brought up and um, um, moral equivalencies and um, even denial that this happened, which is really bizarre. Have yeah, I, I have seen pro-Palestinian apologists on the media circuit saying these rapes never happened. These these torturing never happened. Or if it did happen, it was just one or two people, but it's not to the scale that Israel is saying. And there is a level of of denial. And, and I do appreciate you fielding a bunch of questions that are probably a bit offensive to you um, mm-hmm. and, and your neighbors, but helping us to understand these things maybe going to ask our Jewish friends all of these kinds of questions isn't the best idea yeah. um, and forcing them to answer them. But maybe we can get those answers through our own research, but put forward our support um, for our yeah. Jewish friends. That, that's right. kind of what I hear you saying. Yes, absolutely. And they, you know, the thing is, is like the author of that article and as I've talked to my Jewish friends, and I almost kind of feel this way myself just living here, his concern that he expressed was that if you're not willing to speak up about what happened, you're suspicious for us because we don't know if you would hide us if that was necessary. Like, would you be a Corey Tenboom? Would you? And if you're not willing to say, I stand with Israel and I condemn what Hamas did, then maybe you're not going to be a Corey Tenboom for them. And that's what they're feeling right now. Um, and so I think absolutely you need to reach out to them and you need to, if you have Jewish friends, you need to call them up and you need to tell them, I'm really sorry about what happened in Israel. And I just wanted to check on you and see how you're coping. Um, that's a very simple question you could ask. And if you do have a, a boldness about you um, for such a time as this on your social media, just post, I stand with Israel, you know, um, just say it. Um, another thing too, is just to be cautious, like you can have a big heart for the Palestinian people and the civilians in Gaza, but if you're going to approach one of your Jewish friends, just respectfully lay that aside and just say, I'm really sorry for what happened to your people. Um, just let it be that, that, um, I've even seen, uh, some recommendations that pastors could approach, um, rabbis in the community if you know you have a synagogue in your community to approach a rabbi call up a rabbi and um just ask how they're doing check in see what their needs are possibly offer to pay for some extra security if they feel like they need that um but yeah be be intentional about expressing your concern that they really need that really um that's that's great i love the practicality of that and yeah and at the same time, like you said, you know, when we approach our, our Jewish friends, you know, we might have to temporarily, you know, lay aside questions or concerns we might have about our Palestinian brothers and sisters. And that complicates matters because just as there are Jewish Christians, there are also Palestinian Christians. Yeah. And they have shrunk 
to such a minority. They're one of the most intensely persecuted groups of Christians on the planet. And I think that, you know, it's confusing because the rhetoric in the media is that you're pro-Palestinian, but that's really almost coming to be a synonym for I'm pro-Hamas. You know, I'm pro the Palestinian government when, when in fact, my understanding is that you can be a Muslim and a a Palestinian and uh, a Christian and a Palestinian. That being a Palestinian is more like I don't know an ethnicity or nationality, or I'm not really sure how to categorize it. But it it is confusing. Yeah. So Palestinian is actually a nationality. Their ethnicity is Arab. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, they're the same ethnicity as all the Arabs on the Arab Peninsula. Um, so that is their ethnicity. And then back, you know, back during British Mandate Palestine, everyone who lived here was called a Palestinian, like you were Palestinian Jew or you were Palestinian Arab. It just, the term just kind of connoted a regional, um, a regional title. And it was actually developed by the Emperor Hadrian in 132 AD after the Bar Kokhba revolt. Um, so Hadrian decided in response to that revolt, which failed from the Jewish people, he decided to rename Judea um, Palestine, uh, or he called it Syria, Palestina. And that was a Latinized version of Philistine. So he intentionally named this region after an enemy of God, after an enemy of the Jewish people um, to punish them. And the Palestinians today, they aren't even... um, they aren't related to the ancient Philistines. They were, right. they were a, a Grecian people from possibly Crete. They were right. settled in that area by the Egyptians. So um, they're not DNA. Their DNA is not related to them. But that is the title. That is the the name that Hadrian gave this region to punish the Jews and to wipe out the Jewish association with the land. And they that's Asian very interesting. I had never heard that before. And so Palestinian is not a religion. No, it's not a religion and it's not a race. It's a nationality. Okay. And so when we think about the Palestinians as a people, you know, we want to acknowledge, you know, their dignity. And many and many of them have been innocent bystanders in in some of these problems. And also that there are Palestinian brothers and sisters in Christ and and Arabs are mentioned in Acts chapter two, right from the beginning of the church. They're they're mentioned on Pentecost. And so these Christians are some of in in line with some of the oldest, most ancient Christians, along with the Jewish people. And so we should have an appreciation for our relationship to them and the hardships that they they have to endure because of the wicked decisions of those who rule over them. Mm-hmm. I, I think that it's important to put it in a context and that the Palestinian or uh, those brothers and sisters are, I mean, I've heard that they're down, it's down to like 1% of the population. I don't know, but they must be under intense persecution 
in Gaza, there's only um, a thousand or less Christians there, and they are Greek Orthodox, Greek or Eastern Orthodox. Um, I couldn't tell you how many are in like the Palestinian territories as a whole, but I can tell you that they were better off when um, the territories were under Israeli sovereignty. So when Bethlehem was under Israeli sovereignty, um, it was about 80% Christian. And then after the Oslo Accords, it switched hands to the Palestinian Authority. And now I see like high estimates at 20% and low estimates at like 12% Christian. Um, so, you know, if they come under Palestinian governance, that that's not going to go well for them. Mm -hmm. um, there are still Palestinian Christians who want Israel to go back to like the um, 49 armistice lines. They, they don't want them, you know, they want that two state. Um, but they also, um, they also do teach a lot of um, Palestinian liberation theology. That is another issue that we deal with here. Yeah, I saw that in your notes. And I want to talk about that for a minute because that was new information for me that liberation theology has penetrated the Palestinian Christians and yeah. um and what that looks like because over here, you know, Latin American liberation theology, black liberation theology is largely guided by Marxism. It's kind of a intersection of Marxism with Christianity and then kind of reimagining Jesus in the ethnicity of the oppressed. How does that show up in the Palestinian version? Very similar. <laughs> okay. Um, so Palestinian liberation theology is being developed by Dr. Um, Naeem Atik, and he works at um, it's here in East Jerusalem at the Sibyl Ecumenical Liberation Theology Center. Uh, he's also um, one of the priests at St. George's Anglican Church in East Jerusalem. Um, so this is sort of his project. And if you look him up, he's a very gentle, soft-spoken man. So he's an Anglican? Is this what you're telling me? And he's an Anglican Palestinian. Yeah. Oh, now I got to I gotta talk to some people. <laughs> I got to understand that more. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. Old city that's yeah. pro Israel, you know, <laughs> and yeah. church. But anyway, yeah. So he, he has this, um, you know, he has his center where he is doing research on Palestinian liberation theology. And he's basically brought this into the Palestinian Christian community. And it's the same idea as all liberation theologies. It's Marxist. It's viewing um, the word of God through the lens of the oppressed and the oppressor. It's just this time the oppressed is the Palestinians and the oppressor is Israel. Right. And what ends up happening with this is that um, they start to look at stories like even David and Goliath, where rather than that being Israel defeating the Philistines, which is where Palestine came from, um, it is the, the Palestinian people defeating Israel. So it completely turns scripture upside down, um, which is really sad. Um, but in doing so, they uh, basically remove Jewish, the Jewish identity of Yeshua. Like he is not Jewish. He's a Palestinian. So when you hear... When your progressive Christian friends post memes, so say, many questions. Okay, <laughs> keep going. All right. Yeah. When your progressive Christian friends post memes that say Jesus was a refugee 
um, uh-huh. under an occupation. Usually around Christmas time. Yes, around Christmas when this cycles through every Christmas. That is from Palestinian liberation theology. <laughs> oh, I got to find somebody I can talk to about this. This sounds interesting. Okay. Yes, they teach this also at Bethlehem Bible College. They teach Palestinian liberation theology. I don't know if you all have heard of Christ at the Checkpoint. It's a conference that they have every few years and that they permit Palestinian liberation theology there as well. Um, so it's. I'm not going to say that every Palestinian Christian I know or every Arab Christian I know adheres to this. But in the way that worldviews just try, just tend to like trickle, yeah, you know, trickle into the culture, it's still something that we have to contend with. Um, there are some actually um, pro-Israel Arab Christian congregations, um, but yeah, this is something that we have to contend with, and not just here in Israel, but also they're really marketing this to the West. You know, like they're really pushing this very much. Up- on American and European Christians, you know. Do you think that there are sincere grievances that somebody who is of Arab or Palestinian origin could have toward Israel? Do you I, I don't I don't want to assume from everything we've said here that you think Israel is a hundred percent blameless in everything that there could be some grievances that people could have. Do you think that's fair? No, I totally think it's fair. Um, And that, for me, sometimes the danger of speaking out on this is being misconstrued as not having a love for my Arab neighbors, you know, um, in my pro-Israel position is that maybe I don't have enough grace for them or enough love for them, but, you know, I do live here. (laughs) But anyway... um, yeah, they have had experiences. Even um, Dr. Naim Atik that has developed liberation theology, you know, he shares this really heart-wrenching story of his family being kicked out of their Arab-Israeli home or Arab-Palestinian home um, and being like refugees in a northern part of Israel for a while before they were able to come back. Um, of course, the context of that would have been that Israel um, was allowing anyone here any Arab families here to stay that weren't involved with the Arab Liberation Army. If they were involved with the Arab Liberation Army, then they had to leave. Um, So there is some bigger context for what was going on with that. But if he experienced that as a child, then of course I I can understand that he would have negative feelings towards um, Israel. You know, if someone lost a loved one in Gaza in an attack, of course they would have um, negative feelings, you know, um, there's plenty of things. Israel is not a perfect, it's a secular, uh, government built by sinners and it's not going to do things perfectly all the time. And so I think that they do have some real grievances. Um, I know of a pro-Israel Arab Christian who, um, he took on this position to support Israel because one of his Christian friends talked to him about it and said, you need to forgive the Jewish people. And that's what started the process for him. Um, So sometimes it's just that, like, okay, I understand that they did wrong, but we need to look at the bigger picture of what God's word says, that they are, you know, he did covenant this land to them and that there is a judgment in Joel 3 for anyone who scatters the people of God and divides the land of God. Um, We need to come in agreement with God's word. So what steps can we take to start moving in that direction? And it's definitely a process that requires a lot of patience and a lot of prayer. 
Um, it's not something, you know, you need to approach everyone as an individual. Um, but with the Arab friends that I have, I do tend to be a little bit open with them initially and just let them know that we're a Messianic family and I do stand with Israel. I mean, I'm not like, hi, I'm Callie. I stand with Israel, you know, <laughs> but early on in the, in the friendship, I will let them know what my position is because I don't want them to think I'm being disingenuous. But I'm the same with my non-believing Jewish friends. I tell them pretty soon into the friendship that I am a Gentile Christian and my husband's Messianic Jewish. This is who we are. You know, I don't try to hide who we are. Um, And so far with my Arab Christian friends, this hasn't hindered any relationships for me. Um, You know, even if they don't agree with me, you know, it hasn't been something that's put, um, you know, major block in, in being able to be in relationship. Yeah. Wow, this is this has been a lot. You've given us a lot to think about um, as we close out here. Maybe give us a little bit more thoughts about how to pray about what's happening there, because it it feels like there, when we turn on the media, there's just so much anger, and it's so easy to let our emotions just run away with us and run amok. But we want to be focused on prayer. So give us some thoughts along those lines. Yeah. Um we are praying a lot <laughs> we need a lot of prayer um of course i think the biggest prayer is for the salvation of israel and the salvation of the arab people um because like we have two populations of people who haven't received messiah yeshua um you know so we need to be praying for their salvation and you know um i can't speak for what happens with the arab side but i can tell you that the biggest revival in the jewish people since the first century happened it coincided with the reunification of Jerusalem at the Six Day War. So that event sparked something in the hearts of the Jewish people where they were open to receiving their Messiah. And that's in line with scripture. If you look at like the Psalm 83 war, for example, at the very end of that passage, it talks about how the Lord is saying that he drew these nations into battle so that he could reveal himself to the nations. So this tends to be a theme surrounding wars with Israel is that God um, uses them to prove himself to the nations that proves that he is God of Israel to the nations. And so we need to pray that through this hearts would be open to receiving Yeshua. Um, we always pray the promises of, of God for Israel from scripture. That's something like when the messianics meet, we pray those passages. So any verses that state promises for Israel is something that you can definitely be praying. Um, I think the major prayer right now is for the hostages to be released. Um, we've still got about 226 hostages and it's really interesting because when they, when we just had recently, we've had four hostages released and every time we've had hostages released, that number has gone up based on the information that they've been able to provide. Um, but we have right now, the number is 226 and there's a nine month old baby. Um, there's very small children there. We need to be praying for them. They're under, they're in the tunnels, um, under Gaza. We need to be praying that the Lord would be with them in those tunnels and that as many of them as possible would be released. Um, Also for protection for the IDF. Um, That's another big one that we are praying and that um, our leaders would have wisdom uh, on how to go about this so that we have as few civilian casualties as possible. Um, That is something we pray about. We also pray for the Gaza and the civilians in Gaza to 
evacuate. Um, they would have the wisdom of the Lord to evacuate, um, to make this easier for Israel, um, and so that they would be safe. And um, of course, for all the families that lost loved ones in the massacre, just that the Lord would comfort them um, and that he would use this to draw them closer to him. They wouldn't harden their hearts towards him. Um, we also pray for truth to be known in the midst of this propaganda war. That's another really big one that we pray because we know that there's a propaganda war. So we pray for you all, you know, ever here in Israel, we're praying for you all um, to know truth and and to be able to discern what is true or what is what is not true in the media. Um, and just to remember that God's name is on the nation of Israel. And so, of course, the left-leaning anti-God, anti, anti-Christ spirit in the media is not going to support Israel. So um, just that you would have discernment about that. And we also pray for you all to have hope and to not be afraid because um, these events do seem to have, they do seem to be a biblical proportion. And <laughs> we do pray for you all to have peace about that and to not be afraid soon. Um, wow. Thank you. That's very powerful, Callie. Okay. We're going to put a bookmark right there. Make sure to tune in to part two of this conversation with Callie Mitchell as we continue to listen to her perspectives about Israel, living in Israel, and Israel at war. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.